five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the Space Economy Podcast and the next episode in our special series, Doing Business in the Solar System, hosted by Elizabeth Howell. Today's podcast is about the abundant resources asteroids provide. Listen in. Welcome to Doing Business in the Solar System, where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. This is a Space Cube podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell. Asteroids and comets are abundant resources in our universe, but there are many challenges in mining them. They're scattered throughout the solar system. We don't know yet what each small body contains. And even if we do know what's out there, so to speak, how will we get the resources out? To learn more, we'll speak with Dante Loretta, leader of the sample return mission on NASA's OSIRIS-REx sample return mission. Dr. Loretta is also a professor of planetary science and cosmochemistry at the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary, Planetary Laboratory. Welcome, Professor. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. Thanks, we really appreciate having you here. So before talking about OSIRIS-REx mission, what it's going to be doing, what it has done, I'm curious, just in general, what do you see as the chief obstacles to mining asteroids, such as the destination of the return mission, Bennu, and how do you think we can get around it? Well, I would say the good news is there's no technical engineering or scientific hurdles to asteroid mining. Uh, it all makes sense. The commodity that people have really looked at intently that kind of has an economic model behind it is extraction of water and turning that water into uh, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, rocket fuel, and basically developing in space propellant depots. The challenge is financial and business. You know, it, this is a big endeavor uh, with a lot of implementation challenges associated with it. The budgets are going to be large and the time to return on investment is going to be decades. And then um, have you heard any word about the couple of companies that have been talking about doing um, asteroid uh, returns, asteroid sample returns in the near future, or are you still kind of waiting for more word? I don't know of any companies that are pursuing asteroid mining that are still in business. Um, the ones that I have worked with in the past have all gone belly up. Okay, that's about the same that I heard, so I wanted to make sure. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more about the mining aspect in a few minutes, but I do want to get the latest on OSIRIS-REx because it's been quite busy this past year and continues to uh, do research and science. And so can you first talk a bit, kind of backing up, about its goals and what the spacecraft is doing to meet those goals? Sure. OSIRIS-REx is a NASA mission in the New Frontiers program. This is considered a medium-class mission with a budget of approximately $1 billion U.S. plus some outstanding international contributions, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit here. The primary objective of the mission is to launch a spacecraft, which we did in 2016, to rendezvous with a near-Earth asteroid named Bennu, and the spacecraft arrived there in 2018. Survey it in great detail, which we did throughout most of 2019. Select a sample site and send the spacecraft down to the surface to collect material, which was successfully implemented on October 20th of 2020. And then prepare and ultimately deliver that sample back to the surface of the Earth for analysis in our terrestrial laboratories. And when is it going to be returning that sample back to Earth? 
Uh, we're in the final stages of preparing for our departure maneuver. Uh, we're looking at May 10th of 2021, where we'll use the main engines to leave the vicinity of asteroid Bennu and begin a little over two-year return cruise back to the Earth. The spacecraft will deliver a return capsule to the Utah Test and Training Range in the southwestern United States on September 24th, 2023. Okay, so there'll be a little bit of a wait time. Is it simply because of orbital dynamics, the position of the asteroid vis-a-vis -vis Earth? Absolutely. I think it's, it's pretty fascinating that we will fire the engines on the spacecraft in 2021, and that's basically a ballistic flight through the solar system until we intersect the Earth about two and a half years later. That's fascinating. I love cosmic distances. Okay, so getting back to that sample return, what kind of lessons learned do we get from that sample return that might be helpful in the future? In other words, what did you learn for, from OSIRIS-REx that you're hoping to have other people implement on future sample return missions? In terms of scientific sample return, uh, there's a couple lessons learned. The first thing we learned was how difficult it is to precisely position the spacecraft to make observations at the resolution of the surface that you're interested in for understanding its compositional diversity. So I would build more autonomy into the spacecraft so that it can station keep relative to a position on the asteroid surface and collect data uh, under the conditions that are optimized for whatever product you're trying to build there. The other thing that we learned studying Bennu is that it's really variable. When you look at the rock types, there's a large diversity of reflected values and morphologies, sizes and shapes, roughnesses. Uh, and the spectrometers that we brought that map the surface uh, are very coarse in their resolution, usually tens of meters per spot, giving you high, high spectral resolution where you can tease out the presence of different chemicals and minerals on the surfaces but not really letting you know what is the overall diversity of the scene that you see in front of you. So I really wish we had a high resolution imaging spectrometer so we could more fully understand the compositional diversity of the pile of rubble that is Bennu. And then one way that you got a sense of the topography of Bennu was using a Canadian laser instrument called OLA. So can you explain how that worked and how that could be adapted the same kind of principles or improved upon maybe for future asteroid survey missions? Yeah, we're really proud of the Canadian Space Agency's funded OSIRIS-REx Laser Altimeter, or OLA instrument. This is an unprecedented scanning LIDAR, so it's kind of like radar where you can determine how far away an object is, but it uses a laser beam, so it gets really nice spatial resolution on the surface. And then it has a mirror that's steerable. You could move it you know, on the X direction or the Y direction, and you can then trace out very complicated patterns on the surface or just simple linear scans and rapidly build up these three-dimensional topographic maps of the asteroid surface. And that's actually a follow-on to a previous relationship that we had with Canadian Space Agency on the Phoenix Mars Lander, where a CSA LIDAR was part of the uh, environmental monitoring package and was actually used to detect clouds above the Mars lander and to do great Martian atmospheric science. So it's it's going to be fun to continue to work with our colleagues in Canada to produce these really innovative LIDAR instruments and, and contribute substantially to solar system exploration in general. In terms of, of the asteroid, the only thing I would say is we lost the, the low energy laser transmitter on OLA very late in the mission after it had collected all of its data, we had some fun things in mind that we could have gone in for low altitude passes and gotten some super high resolution LIDAR data. 
So I would look at the redundancy a little bit and just maybe have a backup system there, try to figure out what that failure mode was so that the instrument could be used well into the future. But from a scientific perspective, it delivered everything we could have dreamed of and more. It's a phenomenal data set of asteroid Bennu in, in glorious 3D. I love that. And then um, how could this type of surveying with a laser instrument or similar be done on future asteroid survey missions? I would say definitely do what we did with OSIRIS-REx, uh, where you have this, this two-axis mirror scanning LIDAR. It samples at a very high rate of 10,000 hertz. So every second, you get 10,000 range measurements. It works in close proximity. In order to get that kind of data volume, you have to be relatively close to the surface within a kilometer or maybe even a few hundred meters. But we didn't have any issues with that. So I would say just do what we did and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about the composition of Bennu itself. We've been talking about how to survey it, uh, how you were picking up stuff from it, but we haven't talked a bit much about what's going on on Bennu. And so can you explain, first of all, what's there? What are we finding? Well, Bennu is a B type of asteroid. And if you're not familiar with what that means, there is a whole classification system for asteroids based on how they reflect sunlight. It's called the visible and infrared reflectance spectroscopy. And B-type asteroids are pretty different because they're actually literally blue, which means that they reflect more light at shorter wavelengths than at longer wavelengths. And that's different than most other asteroids, which are generally red kinds of objects. So we knew Bennu was something interesting just from our ground-based spectroscopy. And when we looked at the other things in the solar system that had similar B-type spectra, they were uh, interesting objects. There were a whole bunch of them in this family called active asteroids, where you actually see asteroids that are in the main belt that dynamically look exactly like they should in terms of orbits and orbital elements. They don't look like they're comets or from the outer solar system. Yet they have this activity where they look like a comet in the telescope for a while, where they develop some kind of coma, uh, maybe a tail. It looks like they're emitting dust. And the activity can be um, intermittent, like only when the asteroid gets to perihelion, which is the closest point to the sun in its orbit. There was an, a near-Earth object called Wilson-Harrington, which was a comet when it was first discovered and since went extinct. So we kind of had this hope that Bennu was going to be maybe transitionary between asteroids and more comet-like material. And what we were really excited about scientifically and in terms of the sample return was understanding the role that objects like Bennu early in the solar system played in delivering the water that makes up the oceans on our planet and delivering the organic material that may have triggered and seeded the origin and evolution of life on Earth. So we were really hopeful that that is what Bennu represented. And we were going off this spectral classification from ground-based telescopes. And then when we arrived right away, uh, Bennu started looking like pay dirt, literally pay dirt in the mining sense of the term, i.e. having a composition full of the commodity that's exactly what we're searching for. In this case, the water. Uh, during the approach phase, using our visible and infrared spectrometer oviers, we saw this nice deep spectral absorption at 2.7 microns, which is in the near infrared beyond what humans can see with their, with their eyes, but we have an instrument that is capable of detecting out to that. And the light got really dim right at that frequency. And we knew that that meant there was water on the surface. 
And you might be surprised by that because when you look at pictures of the asteroid, there's no lakes or rivers or anything like that. And we're not talking about liquid water. We're not even talking about ice like you would expect in a cometary body, but we're talking about what happens when water and rock react with each other and they produce clay minerals, which have water bound up in their crystal structures. So we saw those clay minerals early on and we have verified that result. Then it was full of water uh, locked up inside these clay minerals. Right now, the best estimate is about 10% by weight of the asteroid is water in this crystal form. That's extraordinary, 10%. <laughs> and then how big is the asteroid overall, just so people have a sense about its mass and its size? Yeah, the asteroid is 500 meters in diameter. Uh, and just for a quick cultural reference, that's about the uh, height of the Empire State Building. So you can imagine if Benny was sitting in Manhattan, it would look like a giant hill in the middle of Central Park. Um, so that gives you a sense of the volume that we're talking about. Incredible. And so you talk a lot about the water. So um, how easily could we get it out? Is it just stuck in that clay difficult to uh, extract? Or is there sort of more hope than that? It is locked up pretty tightly in those clay minerals. So you would have to heat it up um, to several hundred degrees Celsius, I think maybe 600 degrees or so in order to start driving off that water. So it would be a thermal process would probably be the easiest way to do that. Uh, maybe concentrating sunlight if you're trying to do this in outer space where you drive off the water. And of course, as with any mining challenge, it's not just water that's going to come off these rocks. You're going to have lots of stuff that you need to worry about industrially, like sulfur, uh, which is very corrosive. So you're going to have to think about the environment and, you know, it's a chemical engineering kind of problem at this point. You're going to drive the water off and you drive a lot of other stuff off as well. And then you got to have some sort of chemical separation to uh, isolate the commodity that you're interested in. Right. So if I was a space miner and I was looking at the water in Bennu, would it be a good bet to go there or should I try another kind of asteroid where the water would be more accessible? What's your opinion? Uh, well, if you're going to an asteroid for water, this is about it, right? Because asteroids generally don't have ice and um, or liquid water in any form like that. So you're pretty much looking at water in the form of clay minerals. It's a straightforward process to liberate it. You just have to think it through uh, all kinds of engineering challenges to solve there, but that's what chemical and mining engineers do for a living. Uh, and it's very accessible. That's one of the reasons that we selected it for this mission. It's got a very, very low delta V, which is a way of characterizing how much energy or velocity it takes to get to different destinations in the solar system. Bennu comes very close to the Earth every six years. It's a potentially hazardous asteroid because of that. So it's very accessible and it's got exactly the kind of commodity I think the first asteroid mines are going to target. Got it. And then, of course, there would be special challenges in trying to work in the, I want to say, strange gravity of asteroids, just in the sense that we're more used to thinking about Earth, Mars, the Moon, where it's sort of a big body with pretty stable and uh, consistent gravity, whereas here it's a little more lumpy, right, from what I understand? Yeah, it's a microgravity environment. So it's similar to what the astronauts experience on the space station, actually, just from the vibrations of the station, there's a small acceleration. And that's similar to what they experience, uh, the experience of the spacecraft around the venue has been. So you're, you've got to think a little differently. It, the other thing we learned when we went in to collect the sample is that the surface responded in a very fluid-like way. Uh, the best analogy that I've used is it was like a ball pit at a kid's playground, right? Where you drop in and you just sink in until you push enough balls underneath you uh, between you and the floor to stop your downward motion. 
So you're dealing with this spinning pile of fluidized rubble in microgravity. You can definitely take advantage of that because things don't weigh very much. You could move very large boulders for very low amounts of energy, uh, but things are going to react in ways that you're not used to having dealt with Earth's gravity through our entire experience. So clearly you're gathering a lot of data about a, from OSIRIS-REx, you're continuing to gather data, and then of course you're going through what you can during the mission and then for many years afterwards. But if you were to kind of talk about the things that really move the needle on our understanding of Bennu, asteroids, anything sort of in that field generally, what kind of examples could you point to from your mission? Well, I mentioned this when we were selecting Os uh, Bennu as the target of OSIRIS-REx, that we looked at these B-type asteroids because they had some activity. And it turns out Bennu belongs in that category. It's an active asteroid. And not soon after we got into orbit, literally within a week of orbit insertion, we started seeing these particle ejection events coming off the surface of the asteroid. And the first images were frightening. They looked like explosions, like the major events uh, that were occurring on the asteroid. And we were immediately worried about the safety of the spacecraft. And then this is a great example of how your intuition just doesn't apply in these microgravity environments. We sent multiple teams off to study the data and they came back and they said, these things are have energies that are measured in the millijoules. These are very, very tiny events. It just doesn't take a lot of energy to eject stuff off the surface. And in fact, most of the particles were not leaving Bennu. They were getting lofted up above the asteroid surface, in some cases getting accelerated by solar radiation pressure doing multiple revolutions around the asteroid and then ultimately impacting back into the surface. And Bennu was doing this constantly. It's almost like popcorn where there's these little events constantly ejecting and erupting on the surface and this cloud of particles around the asteroid that, that re-impact. So kind of mix the overall surface regularly over the course of its time in near-Earth space. The coolest thing about that, once we realized that it wasn't a hazard to the spacecraft was we recognize that these were little gravity probes and we were able to track them for days, in some cases over a week as they orbited around the asteroid and use them to map out in fantastic detail the gravity field of the asteroid and to get some insight into what the internal structure might be. So that was a huge science bonus that we never expected. We don't know what's causing these ejections, but one of the leading candidates is micrometeoroid impacts. There's all this dust in, in our solar system. We see shooting stars in our atmosphere all the time. Those same kinds of particles are striking Bennu and probably creating these ejection events, which means all small asteroids in the inner solar system should have this kind of property. So it should almost be a standard part of any mission to go in, monitor these ejected particles and map out your gravity field, because now you have an instant way to probe the internal structure of your asteroid. So sample return clearly has only happened a few times before, and in a minute we'll talk about the Japanese mission. So let's just leave that one aside for a moment. So for OSIRIS-REx only, can you walk us through the process of how it's going to be bringing the samples back through the atmosphere and then how you're going to be protecting them in the months and years afterwards, bringing it back to the lab, getting it analyzed and so forth? Yeah, the OSIRIS-REx mission is using a tried and true piece of hardware and all of the operational procedures from the NASA Stardust mission. Stardust went out to rendezvous with a comet called Built 2 and flew through its coma with a big kind of tennis racket full of this low density material called aerogel, which caught all the dust grains that were spewing off the comet's surface and then brought that back to the Earth in this return capsule. 
And that spacecraft and mission was um, led by Lockheed Martin. And we are also using Lockheed Martin for OSIRIS-REx. So they said, hey, we've got this great sample return capsule design from Stardust. We should just rebuild this. And we did, for the most part, there was some electronics that needed to be upgraded, as always, when you go to old design and you start looking at the parts that are on the cards and things that have gone obsolete that you have to bring up to whatever era you're building in right now. But the basic technology of the super light ablator heat shield, the parachute deployment, uh, the G switches, which were made infamous by the failure of the Genesis capsule. For those of you who are familiar with NASA spaceflight programs, Genesis was a another sample return mission to get um, solar wind. And it had a similar design also built by Lockheed Martin, but the switch, which measured the deceleration in the atmosphere and triggered the parachute release was installed backwards and the capsule crashed into the desert. We have fully tested all of that equipment in the, at the system level. Uh, so we're confident that the heritage design from Stardust is gonna work. That capsule is going to hit the top of the atmosphere at 12.4 kilometers per second. That heat shield is going to dissipate most of that velocity uh, just through heating and friction. And then when we reach free fall velocity, we'll first deploy a drogue chute and then a main parachute. And the capsule should touch down relatively gently at the Utah Test and Training Range, which is a U.S. Air Force range in the state of Utah in the southwestern part of the United States. And then I'll be there with my team. We'll have some helicopters ready to go. Uh, the great thing about working with the US military is they will have tracked the path of the capsule all the way through the atmosphere and have a pretty good idea of where it landed. We'll fly the helicopters out there, do some immediate safety checks. There's some potential uh, for the battery to outgas and we gotta make sure that's safe. We package it up and we have a facility set up at a hangar at the, at the range there uh, where we separate out the science canister, which is where the treasure is. That includes the sampling mechanism and all the material we collected. Everything gets packaged up and we fly immediately to NASA's Johnson Space Center, uh, landing at Ellington Airfield. And then we have a curation facility there that we're in the middle of construction right now, uh, where we receive the science canister, we open it up, and we begin the process of sample analysis. And we have a two-year plan to try to understand basically the entire history of the solar system as witnessed by asteroid Bennu. And then how are you going to be protecting this precious sample from contamination by Earth? That's a huge part of the system design. So the curation facility has special cabinets. Uh, from the time that we get to the capsule, it's under a dry nitrogen purge, and we keep it under that dry nitrogen all the way to the facility in Houston. And then the samples, if they are to be considered pristine, will always be kept under that nitrogen atmosphere. So we want to make sure that we don't expose it to oxygen, that we don't expose it to water vapor or organic molecules, because those could either react with the minerals that make up the samples, or they could um, contaminate the measurements that we're particularly interested in making. So it's not until it gets to an individual scientist laboratory that you might actually break that seal and then that just needs to be documented and well understood and minimized uh, to make sure that the scientific results are as reliable as possible. 
Got it. Okay. Now, what excites me about OSIRIS-REx is that by the time that you get these samples in 2023, maybe 2024, depending on you know how fast it gets to certain laboratories open and all that, we're going to have a few years of data already from Hayabusa 2. And so that's the Japanese mission that just returned its own samples from asteroid Ryugu. I believe it was late last year, so late uh, 2020. And so I realize that right now we have a bit of an information gap, so to speak, because we have the Ryugu samples on Earth being looked at right now, and you're still waiting for Bennu's to arrive. But do you see any similarities yet between the two missions in terms of what they've collected? I really can't say because uh, our JAXA colleagues have been very tight-lipped about the nature of the material so far. So we're all anxiously waiting some news about what do they have and what does it look like? Ah, secret. Well, I can't wait to hear myself. <laughs> I was hoping to get some insight, but we can wait on that one. I'm sorry, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't help you out there. But um, no, it's okay. It's okay. We completely understand. There are no. embargoes and other things that have to be considered, and you also want to make sure not to rush this process. Obviously, you want to make sure you're taking your time and doing it in the right way before releasing it to the public. Um, how about we talk quickly about asteroid surveys? Now, obviously, we could do a whole episode about the incredible work that's being done by NASA's Planetary Defense Office. You know, among other entities, all the telescopes that are doing the scanning. But what I want to do is really zero in on one particular mission that's still being uh, figured out. And it's called Neo Surveyor. It used to be called NeoCam, and I might have gone through a couple more names before that, so hopefully I'm up to date. But basically, NASA wants to launch a dedicated asteroid hunting telescope. That would be the mission. And so if it gets up there, when it gets up there, how will the space telescope enhance all this great work that's being done on the ground? Yeah, Neo Surveyor is really the next logical step in surveying the inner solar system for potentially hazardous asteroids. And the mandate right now from the U.S. Congress is that we detect 90% of all asteroids down to 140 meters in diameter. And infrared is the only technique that's going to get you those kinds of statistics. And Bennu is a great example. It's an extreme example, but we, when we talk about Bennu, it's characterized by an albedo of 4.5% which means when sunlight hits its surface, only 4.5% of that light is reflected, 95.5% of that light is absorbed, heats up, and then is re-emitted back into space as infrared radiation. So Neo Surveyor is taking advantage of the fact that 95% of the energy from asteroids like Bennu and even 80% of most asteroids' energy from their surface is coming off in the infrared. So you're going to be able to detect a lot more objects if you look at those wavelengths. You can't do that from the ground because the atmosphere is opaque to those um, infrared light wavelengths. So you go into outer space, you can detect objects much more easily using where the wavelength region where most of the energy is and hopefully reach that mandate of understanding 90% of the potentially hazardous asteroids to give us a true understanding of the risk of asteroid impact in the future. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Loretta. That was uh, Doing Business in the Solar System, a Space Cube podcast with Elizabeth Howell. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel, at The Economy Space, to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Thank you. See you next week.